As a pastor, I'm constantly concerned about how to create connections beyond just the weekend services. And one of the valuable tools that we have found for achieving this at our church is our app powered by Subsplash. It's one thing to have an app. It's another thing to have an app that has the ability to allow your community to access messages, resources, and even give. And Subsplash created that for us. It's become our go-to platform for connecting with our congregation in ways we never could have before. Subsplash is so much more than just a platform or even just an app. It brings people together, empowers giving, and transforms lives. If you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to visit their website at subsplash.com. That's S-U-B-S-P-L-A-S-H.com. Subsplash.com. Following Jesus isn't always easy, but it's not complicated. Join us each week as we work to make faith simple. This is Simple Faith. Randy Frazee, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, you um, have done a lot of things. You've been an author, are an author, pastor, uh, lead different organizations in the city, in the country. Give us the, uh, the wiki page on yourself. Tell us a little bit about you. Hey, let's start with first things first. Ready? <laughs> okay. Go Chiefs. Go Chiefs. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Land of the free, the home yeah, of the Chiefs. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, uh, I uh, pastored, I've been a lead pastor or teaching pastor for 34 years now, coming on 35. I did uh, 16 years at, uh, in, at Pintigo Bible Church in Arlington, Texas. I did three years as a teaching pastor at Willow Creek in Chicago. I did 10 years as a lead pastor in uh, San Antonio, Texas, Oak Hills Church. And then the last five and a half years, I've been the lead guy at Westside Family Church in Kansas City, where mm-hmm. you're from. Yeah. And uh, from, you know, about five years uh, in, I met up with uh, one of my heroes, a guy named Lyle Schaller, mm-hmm. and a, uh, really a sociologist, uh, one of the few. And uh, my professor from seminary invited me to a lunch. And that led to writing my first book called The Comeback Congregation. And, uh, and then from there, I'd just been writing. So I was a uh, 30 two years old when I published my first book. It sold uh, not very many copies, um, <laughs> but it was a good book, you know, just you know how that goes because you're an author yourself. And then then, then got into the community space yeah. uh, and then uh, the community space, neighborhood space, spiritual formation space, uh, and then sort of then shifted uh, to the Bible engagement space, which is, uh, you know, my sort of forte, the thing that's really huh. given me the most traction. But I also love, in, in loving neighboring, yeah. uh, I I also then leads to a neighbor's neighboring scales uh, it leads to city movements and so uh, I've led uh, a city movements in San Antonio and most robustly in Kansas City and uh, so that's kind of my little wiki page uh, thing yeah one of those things was getting a hundred churches to participate in uh, Ramsey's uh, momentum. Plan. Yeah, we've done several city movement things uh, that are engagement strategies. So you know, a lot of times they are other things, but I really do engagement things. So one of them was called Margin, mm-hmm. uh, where we took the Financial Peace University mm-hmm. uh, with uh, it. You know, it's a nine-week program. We designed a ten-week sermon series on top of that, so that the, the whole church would be encouraged to go through. 
the Financial Peace University to try to create margin in their life. Mm. We did a 10-week series, five weeks on making room for life, which you're familiar with, on mm -hmm. finding margin in your time, and then five weeks on finding margin in your money. And uh, we recruited mm. uh, 110 churches to do that. At the end of the nine weeks, uh, there was 8,200 credit cards cut up. There was uh, $4.7 million of cash saved. There was 17.7 million dollars of debt reduced. 86% of the couples saying having better conversations about finances, which is the number one predictor of divorce. And a year later, that uh, total number went to 80 million. And uh, by the way, that that uh, we did that in November, uh, right before COVID hit. So mm. some people said you you are a prophet, and I reminded them I lead a nonprofit ministry. <laughs> so you are a not. For profit. Non for profit. <laughs> okay, I want to drill down on community, mainly for my own interest. Uh, I, I love this space. It's where I first got introduced to you from the book, The Connecting Church. And you were talking in that book about, I think, and I think you, last time I talked to you, your wife even referenced this meeting where there was a, a Bible class you were in or a Bible study, a small group perhaps. And maybe some of you were talking about how you don't even really know the people in your small group. There's no community being built. You're just getting together, going through the questions, and that's it. And it sparked something for you that there should be a different way to do this. Talk about just the, the normal way churches do small groups versus what you decided you wanted to try to do. Yeah, uh, really dynamic thing. I became a pastor at 28 Pentego Bible Church. And you know the goal was to get the worship rocking, you know. Yeah. And uh, then the second thing was to get people to in community, get them into small groups. So we follow the traditional small group route, you know. Uh, you know, get in with a group of people you like, get in with people that are your same age. Mm -hmm. And so Rosanna and I had never had really great experiences with small groups, and mm -hmm. uh, so <laughs> we said, I told Rosanna, I said, I, I and I actually did this, Rusty. I went to my team as a young pastor, and I said, uh, it's it's uh, compulsory. Uh, you have to be in a small group or I will fire you yep. and uh, you got to do it. And so I went home and told Roseanne, she said, you should have talked to me. We don't like small groups. And uh, <laughs> so we said, well, maybe the reason we we don't like our small group is that we haven't been careful in who we selected. Uh -huh. So we literally selected the prettiest people in the church, sure. the wealthiest people in the church, uh, you know, the smartest people in the church. We were the most spiritual people in the church. Yes. And then we left one open couple for the open chair concept. Yes. And we started to get together. And of course, we had very little in common with people who are wealthy, good looking and smart. And so... <laughs> Uh, it turned out that uh, we only got together, you know, once a, a week, and then it went to once every other week. And uh, we just found that we just had really, we didn't live in the same neighborhoods. Obviously, we didn't live in the wealthiest people's neighborhood. And so we just found that it was an event. It was uh, it was an event. And statistically, um, you know, a person that goes, uh, will, will, will start, it'll eventually drop out. And uh, a person will just, so you say, how do you get out of one of those? And the, the question is, is that when you're in a, a, an event driven small group, you uh, just don't plan the next meeting. Uh, right. And then no one can ever get their schedules back together again. But at the same time, uh, we had a neighbor two doors down that had really, uh, wasn't, wasn't a believer, uh, you know, wasn't going to church. He was a sales guy. And uh, he just had this gift of hospitality. Yeah. And uh, we started hanging out. And uh, whereas Ann and I were driving to our small group one time and all the neighbors were out, you know, he was cooking brats in the front yard and <laughs> and Roseanne said, I don't want to go to our small group. And I said, well, we have to go or I'll get fired, you know. <laughs> and she said, what if we made this our small group? 
And so that became the revelation uh, for us that what if we would have, instead of going to our small group, mm. we brought the small group right where we're at. And so I got into some pretty massive studies related to proximity and the value of that and what happens when, when you live in proximity, there's an opportunity for spontaneity, mm-hmm. availability, frequency, and, 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 uh, and so those became the, the criteria for it. And then you look in Acts chapter 17, it says that, you know, God... F- planned ahead of time, the time that you would live and the places you would live. And so wherever people are living right now, uh, they thought it was maybe for the walk-in closet or because, you know, they got a divorce and now they're living in this crummy apartment. But God said, there's a bigger story going on here. You're there by my design for the period of time I have you there for, for a purpose. And uh, we, have de- we have discovered uh, all these years, uh, and that was 1986 is when we first discovered neighboring. And it was uh, 1990 that we started shifting the entire church in that direction. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a tough direction uh, to go for people because the idea of loving your neighbor, like your actual neighbor, it's like, wow, this is like this is like where the rubber meets the road. But uh, uh, it tur- it's turned out to be, Roseanne uh, is right now uh, at a neighborhood gathering out on the uh, cul-de-sac right now wow. uh, in Kansas City. Okay, so let's, let's make this practical because I hear, okay, it's one thing to hang out in the front yard with brats. It's another thing to sit in somebody's room with Bibles in your lap talking about the sermon on Sunday or the latest Bible study book that you're doing. How do you blend those two? What's that look like? Yeah, so the idea is that uh, neighboring, um, you identify uh, you know, a neighborhood. Most, there's most, most neighborhoods have a definition for what their neighborhood is. They have a name for it, so that becomes the name of the, of the identity. And it's, it's a concept where evangelism, recreation, discipleship all overlap. Someone says, is it about evangelism or discipleship? The answer is yes. And so typically what you do is you uh, ideally find uh, three other households to start a traditional sort of small group. Mm-hmm. And uh, that becomes sort of the the anchor of the neighborhood. But then, because you're in proximity, you do life with everybody, and the house is in between those three. Mm-hmm. So I typically will. Uh, I live. I like golf. So I typically live uh, in a place where people golf or on a golf course. And so I golf with the believers who golf. I, I golf with the people who are seekers who golf. And so that world is always constantly intermixing. But the very core of the neighborhood mm-hmm. is what is what looks like a fairly traditional small group, except you don't see each other just when you come to small group, you see each other in the spaces in between. Hey, when you're going out, uh, when you're going out for a walk, when you're walking your dog, when you're taking out the trash, you're just, you're just uh, seeing each other along the way. And some of those are the more dynamic opportunities. And so, you know, there's many times when uh, we'll have a, we'll have a last minute dinner and it's kind of like, Hey, you want to come over for dinner? Mm-hmm. And it's like walking next door. Mm-hmm. And so that there's just, a lot more. So, and you look at Acts mm-hmm. chapter two. You know, we love to we love to study Acts chapter two. But one of the things Americans always miss is that uh, they gather together daily. So, Americans, we want the same impact of Acts chapter two. You know, uh, but we want to put about one seventh to one fourteenth of the energy right. into it. So, I don't know how you do life with people who live all over the place. Right. Uh, I don't see how you pull it off. And right. so, uh, the, so we, we just accepted that sovereignly uh, God has put people uh, into our neighborhood that, that are going to be life-giving to us. Some suck 
the life from us, and uh, others are neutral, but we just feel like this is where God called us. Many people today, and we do it certainly it, it, do this now, are super intentional. You know, they're, they're super intentional of identifying a handful of families, mm-hmm. and they actually move into a neighborhood together. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I was just talking to a family uh, that have lived in the neighborhood in Kansas City for 23 years now, and this one particular guy had just got massively successful, but he chose not to move out. He put, they didn't have a community pool, so uh, he bought the lot next to him, and he personally built the neighborhood pool. So he had the money, but he wasn't going to leave the relationships. Fascinating. Okay, so that's Connecting Church. The next book, Change My Life. They both did. But Making Room for Life dealt more with your own personal struggle with you were living an unsustainable pace. Yeah. You were, you were taking melatonin before everybody was taking melatonin yeah, just yeah. to be able to sleep. Yeah. You weren't sleeping well. You were addicted to fluorescent lights. I remember all the stories in the book. Uh, and it really does talk about our, our, our pace of life. I mean, goodness, that came out 20 years ago. And, 2005, uh, yeah. It, it's only gotten worse. So talk to our, our listeners a little bit about some of the, the things you put into place to create margin in your time. Yeah, first of all, um, no one ever taught me about balance and rhythms and any of that, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so as a young pastor, just like some of your listeners, you know, you're eager, you're young, you're trying to make a go of things, trying to pay the bills. And so I was very ambitious, and I just I just didn't have any boundaries. And I just worked. I got breakfast at six in the morning, put the kids to bed, went back to work, and uh, I felt like I just had more energy than everyone else. Woke up one day, uh, went to bed one night at the age thirty nine. Uh, and uh, couldn't sleep, didn't sleep all throughout the night. That went on for 40 days. Uh, no sleep at night. I would doze uh, during the day, but never that deep REM sleep. And uh, so not only do you get irritable, but anxiety, depression starts to set in. You think you're going crazy. So I got myself into a crisis, went to the doctor, and the doctor uh, said, well, you can move to Borneo. Everyone sleeps in Borneo. And, and I thought, really? I'm like, check out one-way tickets to Borneo. I'm just kidding, Randy. And he said, uh, 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 secondly, you're gonna, new medicine's going to be the trick, and so I shifted from I shifted to uh, uh, Ambien, oh, okay. and uh, that actually does work, but it, it, it it's either uh, uh, physically addictive or at least emotionally addictive. But a lot of people, he said, you're going to have to do it for at least a month, and I think I did it for three. And then he said, then he said, uh, well, or the other thing you could do is no, you won't be able to do that. I'm like, what? Well, tell me what it is. He says, well, you're a pastor, and there's just no way you can pull this off. But he said, but if you were to really get religious about, uh, you know, uh, uh, working during the day and being with your family and friends at dusk and then going to bed at the same time every night uh, and sleeping. He said, if you were to get really good at that, uh, your body may heal. And uh, so I went back to the scriptures and and, uh, went into Genesis chapter one. Mm -hmm. And if Genesis chapter one has all of the rhythms that are there, you're just not looking for them. One of the biggest ones is that after God finishes each day, he says, and there was evening and morning the first day. It's like, no, no, I should say, and there was morning and evening the first day. Well, in the Hebrew life, the day begins at dusk the day before. Mm -hmm. And whatever's first in Hebrew is the most important thing, the first fruit offerings. So I constructed from my doctor's opinion, uh, uh, advice, the Hebrew day planner, Mm -hmm. where uh, everybody in the family uh, has from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. for work, whatever that work may be, homework, church work, whatever Mm -hmm. it might be. You don't have to work that, but that's the allotted time, half Mm -hmm. of your day. From 6 to 10 is everything gets put down. You enter into an evening of unrushed, 
uh, typically uh, centered around a meal, an unrushed meal. Uh, you do not go back to work, and then you try to go to bed at the same time. For like me, 10 o'clock. For others, it could be nine, and you go to bed at 10 o'clock, and your body will start to work. So. Uh, so the Hebrew Day Planner uh, is the is the pattern that I started living, and it took about two years uh, to get my body healed and back in. Now today, uh, you know, I sleep uh, between eight and nine hours a wow. night with no medication. Uh, I've gotten more, per- I've been more productive uh, in this season of my life than I've ever been when I had no boundaries. Mm. And uh, and the best thing of all, my relationship with God, my relationship with my wife of coming up on 42 years, my kids, and the deep uh, sea of relationships that I have, mm. particularly with my neighbors, uh, has never been better. So I just cannot... Uh, but recommend this to people, and particularly young families that are listening, that have uh, all of these kids, and you're thinking the best thing you could do to prove you're a good parent, uh, particularly before they hit junior high, is to sign them up for all these sports, mm-hmm. uh, where it's run by volunteers at night, not during the after the school, and they're skipping meals together. Um, if my four kids were here today, uh, which are now 39 down to 31, uh, they would say the number one thing that uh, they remember growing up in our family were the dinners at night. Hmm. And uh, all the research, Columbia University particularly says, if you want to do the one thing you could do to prevent premarital sex, drugs, alcohol, gang involvement, is to have five dinners with your family a week. Mm-hmm. And people go, that's just impossible. The reason it's impossible is because you've not had your bout of insanity yet. Yeah. Uh, so I did all this not out of vision. I did this primarily to go back to sleep. Yeah. Right? That's amazing. What's funny about that study is it's, it doesn't even say it has to be good food. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> it doesn't have to be healthy. No, no. Just eat ideally, ideally. ideally, it is. But what you'll find, Rusty, and this is, you know, you say, why are we spending so much time on, on around the table? Study the scriptures. You know, the Gospel of Luke uh, you know, has nine occasions where Jesus is doing life around the table with people. It's the humanity of Jesus. And if you study the scriptures from beginning to end, you will see that the table is a big deal. Oh, you know, Jesus set one of the main ordinances uh, around the table, right? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't the little cracker and the little <laughs> juice. You right. know, it was an actual meal uh, that people uh, enjoyed together. Uh, but what you'll find is that when people slow down and make that the priority, it's the first part of the day. 6 p.m. is the first part of the day. It's the most important thing. It's not the thing that refuels you for tomorrow. It is your destination. And when you get that mindset, uh, then it'll start to really work for you. And then you realize, wow, you know, dinners are two-hour affairs. Uh, we're not going to sit around and unwrap a Taco Bell. Right. Uh, that we're going to start. We're going to start making more uh, healthy food, which is going to be a contributor to your overall health, sleep, and so good. vitality. Okay, so you go on to Willow Creek and you start helping them shift from small groups to more of these neighborhood type of of groups. You develop a concept you referred to as the table group yep. and, and that kind of thing. What what was the um, the thinking behind that? Was it tweaked at all? What did you develop there? Yeah. So when I went to Willow, the idea was uh, you know to to apply the these timeless principles of loving your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and community, uh, you don't have to do it the way we did it at Pantigo. We did it the way we did in in, in the Fort Worth area, primarily because I in, I inherited a church that had certain kinds of features to it. So this thing's got lots of design features to it, and so we're going to do something That's different right. at Willow. And uh, so um, we uh, we went in. They had already launched the neighboring, so I went in and, and uh, started studying what was most successful. And the most successful uh, gathering was a gal named Robin Lightcap, who was in my neighbor, uh, was in my on my staff, and uh, she was having a once a month 
uh, gathering with believers in her neighborhood, whether they went to Willow or not, and uh, they were sharing a meal together. And then around the table, they were talking about the other things that they would do in the neighborhood to really be present in the neighborhood. So they might do a movie night where they, you know, bring out the, mm. the movie in the driveway and watch the Bears game. Well, probably not outside on the Bears game, maybe more of the Cubs game. <laughs> and uh, they might start a book club or something like that. And so we decided instead of uh, it being a weekly gathering, mm-hmm. just if believers would get together intentionally once a month around a meal and then just begin to talk about what God might be calling them to do, maybe it's to serve, the, maybe serve an elderly couple or maybe it's to start a, um, a, a, a card night, you know, mm-hmm. or a bags tournament or fourth of July or a Halloween thing, and and you just start developing a sense of, of neighboring. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you can do a, a block party, and, and so you just do things based upon the giftedness of the people in the group, mm. and let that once a month thing not overtake, so that all your margin is not spent with believers, but that you have enough time intentionally to sort of develop relationships with neighboring. We we launched it, uh, Rusty. Uh, uh, and uh, it was actually a mistake, but we launched it. Uh, they were so hungry for this that 7,750 some people signed up on the first Wednesday night. <laughs> that's and, uh, unbelievable. That's a bit, it's a bit overwhelming. It's like that commercial where they start the business and they start to see right. a couple people buy and then it goes out of control. They're like, we're in trouble. So it, it did go too fast. And, and, and overall, the, for the church, it was a failed experiment. I only stayed there three years. Uh, but today, I still get emails of people that are still living and loving their neighbor in a very wonderful way. Mm. Okay, so let's fast forward because you're doing neighboring through Westside Family outside of Kansas City. Um, what do those look like? How, how is your strategy tweaked a little bit now at this this kind of yeah, third iteration? Yeah, the beauty is is that again, it needs to be uh, needs to be designed uh, for with local knowledge. So there's uh, is not one particular. Uh, exact right thing, but there are driving principles. Like one of the principles is um, is that, that community, you know, there's three people, there's 12 people, uh, you know, there is 150 people. So there's a sociological grouping that you're actually looking hmm. for. Uh, so you follow some basic general principles. Proximity is important thing. Mission is important thing. So at Westside Family Church, uh, what we are doing is that we have, uh, we have three campuses and uh, we've identified the elementary schools around each of the campuses. And then we have establishing, we are establishing uh, what's called an area community, which uh, we've recruited um, a, a, a couple in our church, a man and a woman, um, so that both the male and the female can, and we pay them a, a part-time salary, mm-hmm. almost like a stipend, mm-hmm. and they become the shepherds of that uh, uh, those neighborhoods that are surrounding an elementary school. Mm-hmm. And then they'll go and identify um, about five or six, because there's five or six neighborhoods around each elementary school. They call, they call them neighborhood captains that are just gonna help them you mm-hmm. know, with different things. Uh, then we establish for that level of community, which we want it to be 150, then we need to do something. Uh, we establish a sense of mission. Uh, the primary mission we focus on is the elementary school. So we have partnerships mm. uh, uh, with the national organization uh, that helps us to get into the school and primarily focuses on mentoring. But then we do a lot of organic stuff related 
related to uh, uh, the elderly. We have a very intentional wraparound community for fostering and adoption, wraparound community to support them. And so there's the missional side of there. But with inside of these uh, area communities, mm. we start little small groups, mm. these believers. Uh, and so uh, we call them A2 groups out of Acts chapter 2. And uh, they're really focused on three things, uh, belonging, uh, so the sense of you're known mm. and you're, you're loved, uh, uh, growing, uh, you are, uh, that's where your spiritual formation connection, oftentimes connected back to the main campus is at, but, uh, and then serving, that you're mm. going to serve. So we say it at Westside, loving Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and sharing Jesus. And so we put that, and then we drop into it several other things. We have a trained Stevens ministers that are in there. Mm. We have traditional deacons in this church. So we have about 45, I think, deacons, and now they're sort of allocated geographically that handle official benevolence for us. And so you can see it's kind of an ecosystem, but it's all based upon proximity and allows people an entry point uh, into the church. What you'll find is they'll come to the church services. Not everybody that's in the neighborhood comes to our church. We're completely celebratory of that. But uh, when they come to the church, they'll find a place to sit. Uh, so they're they're experiencing worship. You know, uh, real life is a big church. West Side's a big church. So oftentimes you can come and feel lonely in these mm-hmm. churches. Mm-hmm. So they find a place to sit. They'll serve together in the parking lot. They'll serve together in children's ministry. And uh, we're just finding that that overlapping, which is one of the things you're trying to do in community, the overlapping. Uh, of community is really a, one of the missing pieces. We're not getting enough. Uh, you hmm. know, in the book, Make Room for Life, oh, I think my opening chapter is called Crowded Loneliness. Hmm. People are all over the place, but we're not going deep enough with any one group of people. And by deep, I don't mean like we're studying the Greek and Hebrew. I'm talking about just time, you sure know, just life, time right? investment. Yes, yeah, sure. Life. Isn't it fascinating how here we are post COVID, the things you were talking about on Making Room for Life have only escalated. I mean, with the rise of social media, we all think we're connected and we're not. Yeah. But even, you know, was it the UK that came out and they they actually put a a minister of loneliness on their cabinet because they can't figure out how to take away this epidemic people are feeling right now. Yeah, and it's not for a lack of knowledge. You know, right. I was reading this stuff, uh, Rusty. Uh, I was I started doing my research back in the eighties, and uh, uh, and it's back when you had to order it, you know, and have it snail mail to you. And I mean, I read research that was telling us back then; it's telling us now, and yeah. people aren't just paying attention. Right? Uh, they just don't see how it's possible. And uh, it's literally killing them. Right. Uh, you know, uh, one stat that, uh, that I quoted is that um, social isolation uh, is, uh, is as detrimental to your health, if not more detrimental, than smoking. Uh-huh. So I say, if you must smoke, for goodness sakes, don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. Yeah, so that's a joke. I've used that joke many yeah, times. Yeah, I know, I know. It's that's, a joke, but it yeah. is, it's a real deal. And the, and the, wor- and the, and the uh, when, I, when I suffered from uh, my imbalance, my doctor told me, which was insomnia, my doctor said, it takes about 10 to 15 years of uh, imbalance at the level that I had before your particular evil will emerge or raise its ugly head. Hey, let me interrupt for just a second. If you're a church leader and your church does not have an app or your app seems to be a little bit limited, check out subsplash.com as a great resource to really give your app all the horsepower that it needs. You can connect people, you can help them get access to messages, and you can help them set up recurring giving, which is a game changer when it comes to resourcing your ministry, subsplash.com. Okay, back to our episode. 
So for me, it was insomnia. For other people, it's hypertension. Uh, It's going to be cancer. Cancer is primarily stimulated by stress and by imbalance. And and, and so uh, what's happening is that people are are living this lifestyle and all of these things are emerging, but uh, they or their doctors are not making the right connection uh, back to the imbalance of their life. The problem is my imbalance started you know, when I got out of seminary, mm. uh, maybe in seminary. Uh, but what happens is uh, we start imbalancing our kid's life at five years of age right. on the soccer field, right. on the baseball field. And I'm not against sports, but uh, but if you talk to, uh, a pay, there's a documentary done by Pele, uh, Jerry Rice, and, um, and uh, Wayne Gretzky. Huh. And all three of them said, parents, none of us were, right. were raised like you're raising your kids and none of your kids are gonna be professional athletes because you're doing it all wrong. Let your kids be kids. Yeah. So if I could just challenge, if I could just, I can't, I haven't been able to do it successfully. Now for handful people, they've done it and they've been, they've been so grateful and their kids do turn out differently. They do, and if I could just like say, wake up! You're following the wrong guidebook. Right. Yeah, that would that would be so great. And usually, if you start them that early, they grow to hate the sport anyway. They do. Uh, the burnout. You just do, all you got to do, now. You can just Google it. I had to order it and have it snail mail to me. Uh, but um. Yeah, the, the the predominant predominance of kids that get to junior high when they're biologically ready and able to not only play the sport but do it connected to the school, so they can do it after school because the the coach wants to get home to be with their family and they're getting paid for it versus volunteers after dinner um, or during dinner. So that's why we eat. You know, so we take our kids to all these sporting events and we're eating McDonald's and Taco Bell and Sonic or whatever, you know, in and out yeah. burger, yeah. you know, uh, and it's just, it's just completely yeah. the opposite. And so, uh, but the kids are burnt out before they even get there. So it's just backwards. I, I remember when I was in Dallas, uh, I got to be a good friends with a guy that played for the Cowboys mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, he got injured the first year or so. So, you know, uh, maybe the second year. So, you know, he's not a, he's not a, you know, a, a Troy Aikman or something like that. But, you know, uh, and I, I said to him, I said, did you play football in high school? He goes, no, I ran track. <laughs> I go, so what have you? He says, well, I just, you're allowed to show up to try out. Yeah. And I tried out for the Dallas Cowboys and I made the team. <laughs> and I said, really? He goes, and so the theory is, and, and everyone will tell you this, that, that you can't pull out what God didn't put in. Yeah. And uh, this idea that uh, your kid's going to be a professional athlete, um, I just think that you should probably uh, let someone really, really, really objective tell you that early mm-hmm. on. Uh, but your kid will find their way without you, uh, you know, over scheduling them in right. the early years. Let them, let them be kids. And this is really a big challenge for boys right now. We have a boy crisis going on. If people haven't uh, been uh, been aware of this, with uh, you know Warren Farrell's book, The Boy Crisis, Leonard Sachs' book, uh, Boys uh, Adrift. Uh, and what's happening is that there's so much scheduling of boys right now uh, that boys are not able to live that wild at heart dream and we have a boy crisis on our hands. Interesting. So, so yeah. all these things that you're doing, you're spending all this money. And by the way, you have to be fairly wealthy to do this. People, this is the thing, families that are genuinely poor, lower middle class um, are having a better go of it because they don't have the money uh, right. to do all these sports. And then you have to have a lot of money to do select sports. Right. Yeah. You know, why did I never play hockey when I was a little kid? Uh, because we couldn't afford the gear, uh-huh. you know? That's um, right. Yeah, we, we didn't have that at our school. Yeah, couldn't afford it. Okay, so let's get into the story. Um, the story is a a version of the Bible. Is that the way you would say it? Or a, um, a repurposing, I wouldn't say, of the Bible. But basically, you rewrote the Bible. 
Why'd you feel like you need to do that, Randy? Well, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm just a Holy Spirit. <laughs> oh, no, there you yeah, go. No, that's a, I, do, I do have people, uh, uh, when I travel on this, uh, uh, some kid will come up to me and says, oh, you're the one who wrote the Bible. I go, no, please stand back. Uh, no, I would call it a tool. There you go. I would call it a tool. Uh, the story is not the Bible, but the story is filled with scriptures. Uh, and what it is technically, it is an abridged chronology of the Bible. Ah, that's much better. It's an abridged chronology of the Bible. It's what it is. And it has a distinct purpose. And one of the primary purposes, not the only purpose, is that it might lead you to have success uh, to actually access the real full Bible. So it's Mm. not designed to be the Bible you bring to church forever and ever. It's designed to be a gateway for you to be able by yourself in community, to sit in church, to listen to a podcast and really have some idea of what this thing is. It'd be like reading, like I liked Robert Ludlum's, you know, Born Identity series, you know, Born series and, you know, very, you know, 500 pages and and very complicated and lots of characters and lots of study and uh, intricacies of, of the different things and and what we do to uh, what we as pastors do to believers is they come to church on a Sunday and we're speaking on you know uh, you know Ruth chapter 2 Habakkuk chapter 1 would you pick anything it'd be like dropping into page 322 of a Robert Robert Ludlum mm-hmm. novel it's like I have no idea I have no context and so we keep our people really uh, infantile uh, because they can't access it because they don't know the story. Oh, if they yeah. knew the story, then they could drive into Habakkuk. They could drop into Ruth. They could drop into you know, Hebrews right. and go like, I know where I'm at in the story. And uh, then it opens it up for themselves. That's just one of the goals of the story is to give people access to the Bible for themselves. Okay, so when you're sitting down to do this, okay, which I love the way you just explained it, you're sitting down to figure out, all right, what's the greatest hits? <laughs> what's, what's the best of that we put together for the Bible? How did you decide what stays, what you leave out? I mean, obviously Great numbers, question. not needed. But the right. rest of it, Leviticus. Yeah. I mean, you know, how'd you decide? Yeah, um, great question. Um, w- one, this is a uh, trying to give people what we call a novel experience. Mm-hmm. So uh, obviously, for a, a really good for new believers, uh, but a novel experience meaning it reads like a story. It's a kind of book mm-hmm. that you would uh, take to the beach with you and read. Mm-hmm. We took out the chapters and the numbers so it would feel that way. And um, what we're trying to do is to give you the arc of the story, the one story. So what we took out is repetition. Mm-hmm. Okay, we took out repetition. That would be a, a good example. Would be first and second. First of all, the Bible is not organized as a. We're going to talk about that later today in the service. Uh, the Bible is not organized. It is a story, but it's not organized as a story. It's organized to- topically, not chronologically. So when you get to first and second Kings and you read about the, the you know the end of the monarchy into the divided kingdom, you know which is hard enough to understand. You get into all these kings. Then you turn the page. You read first and second Chronicles, and he says. Have we read about Jehoiachin and Jehoiakim before? Or is, is this a common name like Bill, Bill and Ted? And you're like, no, they're retelling the story. But First and Second Kings tells the divided kingdom of the north and the south. First and Second Chronicles only talks about the kings to the south because that's where Jesus is going to come from. So we're not going to tell both of those stories. You know, Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. Right. So, you know, we've already told it once. Let's not tell it again. <laughs> uh, another thing we're looking for is chronology. For example, we took Job out. Now, I love, I mean, Job is one of the most profound books, but the 
the purpose of the story is to um, the purpose of the story is to uh, give you the one story. We That's don't true. fully know where Job falls in 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 the history of the story. He is a parenthetical story, as we call it. Mm-hmm. Some believe, most believe, somewhere around the time of Abraham, but his story is completely parenthetical. It's completely completely aside. Uh, now we did include stories like uh, um, Esther. Hmm. Uh, you know, even though that's sort of a little bit parenthetical to the story, you know, we could have bypassed mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But to be completely honest with you, we wanted to include some of the dynamic stories of women. So right. uh, we included the story of Ruth, uh, which I think is more critical mm-hmm. to the chronology. Uh, Esther could have been left out because it's sort of a parenthetical thing again, but we felt it was really important to do that. But one of the beauties of the story is that when you mix it all up, you take David's sin, for example, with uh, uh, Bathsheba and then followed up with the death the murder of Uriah, which happens in what, 2 Samuel 8, 9, 8 mm-hmm. and 9, over here in the historical, topical historical books. Well, he writes this beautiful, beautiful confession to God in Psalm 51, mm-hmm. but it's in the middle of the Bible. So the <laughs> novice to the scripture, to be honest with you, people in church forever have never been able to see this. So what the story does is it brings Psalm 51 oh, into yeah. uh, 2 Samuel 8 and 9 so that you're reading them together. How long did it take to put this together from concept to turning it into the publisher? Once it goes to the publisher, it takes about eight years. So. It, yeah, it, uh, you know, the, 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 original, the original idea for this actually came from Zondervan, not me. Uh-huh. The, and uh, they, they brought it to the first edition to me as a, as a finished product, project. Uh, and uh, so th- th- that's important to state. That. Yeah. And, uh, and, and when they brought it to me, I was looking for something like this. Mm-hmm. And I thought, uh, I can build, the, the key was to build community around it. And we should talk about that because that's the real thing that I did uh, is, was, is that I built community around the tool. And, uh, but what, what, I, what I discovered was is that the chapters were imbalanced and they needed to change some things out. So we edited it uh, to the, the story that we have uh, today. Let's talk about the community side of it. How do you put yeah. that together? Well, here's the deal. Um, uh, there is a, a study uh, done. Uh, it would be one study of, of, of how to you know, create a habit, how to break a habit. And uh, the example would be if a person decides they want to quit smoking mm-hmm. and they decide to do it on their own, their statistical chances of success are zero. So, yeah, I mean, it doesn't even get to 1%. Wow. So if for, now, some people have been able to quit on their own, but statistically, when you take the aggregate of everybody who's tried, it doesn't get to even 1%. Mm. If you add an effective tool, like a nicotine patch, mm-hmm. it inches up to 5%. But if with that effective tool, you surround it with community, it goes all the way up to 40%. Mm. The same thing is true with reading the scriptures. Um, I think that's why 1 Timothy 4.13, you know, we have this ancient practice, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and teaching. And uh, so, so the idea is if we were to wrap community around it, people might be able to get through the scriptures because um, community provides accountability, community provides um, uh, uh uh, enhanced learning. Mm. And uh, so those are the things you need to complete a daunting task like reading through the Bible. But the story makes it easier because it actually reads like a story, but it's still 31 chapters. And so uh, wrapping community around it. When when the story first came out in 2005, Rusty, Zondervan had big hopes for it. And uh, by 2011, when we launched the story, uh, it had sold 5,000 copies. In 2011, when we when we were launching it, uh, we were launching it, um, 
And since then, I think the number is now 7 million. Mm. I think it's somewhere around there. Don't quote me on that. Of all the different products that center right. around this for children and students. And, uh, and I think that the, you say, what's the difference? The difference is when done as a campaign, whether that campaign is a family or a small group or ideally an entire church, uh, you're going to have greater levels of success. Right. People in a church are going to complete the process. They're going to complete it and they're going to walk away with the first time ever and not just new believers, but sometimes people who've been in church all of their life if we were to put, if we were on a typical Sunday, go okay, we're going to take the whole Sunday. It's open mic time. I'm going to walk down. And it's not open mic. I'm going to put the microphone in front of you, and I want you to you to tell me the story of the Bible. That would be embarrassing, man. <laughs> and so, but it is. But it's very. It's but it's very very uh, uh, doable. So wow, that's the community piece. Um, I, I mean, I, I love how that that all ties together, and I do believe yes, with, with community, it makes it so much better. Um, I'm noticing, and I've taught through this once before, it's been 10 years, we're doing it again. I'm going back through the chapters and reading them, which by the way, whoever decided to put the timeline in there, brilliant. Yes, that was a revision, yes. Yes, uh-huh. because I've been to Bible college and seminary and I've never seen the timeline laid out like this. It mm-hmm. is so, so helpful. But as a pastor, and for any pastor who's listening to this right now, there's a lot to cover in a chapter. I mean, yep. chapter one, we get almost all the way through Genesis. I think it's yeah, one through 11. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's a big chunk. And then we got the whole story of Joseph and everything else going on in the next chapter. So there's all this stuff to cover. As a pastor who has to stand up and say something for 30 minutes about this week's chapter, how do you coach pastors on knowing which to zero in on? Yeah, I said a couple of things. Number one, the beauty of the story, like other things, it's an integrated study. So you don't want to just do the story sermons. You want your people involved in uh, in small groups and in personal studies. So mm. there's an integration. Uh, there's two types of integration in the story. There is the educational integration, which is they're hearing a sermon, they are in a small group for dialogue, and they're doing personal study. Mm. And then you want a familial uh, intergenerational integration where you have the, the adults, the students, and the children. You add those dynamics together, and people are not relying on your sermon yeah. uh, as uh, as the whole meal. As a matter of fact, you know, we encourage, people can do it either way, but we encourage the pastor to do the sermon on the back end of the people's study so that they're getting oh, accustomed, okay, yeah. they're getting accustomed to reading the scripture for themselves versus the pastor always, you know, giving them all of the, all, all of the hints. I, I'm not a huge fan of s- uh, small groups that simply study the pastor's sermon. I think it's a, okay for occasion, uh, but it's leaving the people dependent upon the pastor's observation. Mm. I like to have the people wrestle with the scriptures individually, wrestle with it in community, wrestle with their family, all on the same page, and then come to the service to hear what I have to say or whoever the teacher is. Now, with that said, no meaning that doesn't all fall on you. They're getting a lot of stuff be, before they come to your, your sermon. What I would say is two things. Number one, uh, make sure that you are uh, focusing in on what I call the upper and lower story. Mm, yeah. the, the, the story has uh, the, the the each of these each of these thirty one chapters has a has a, a overarching story of what God is trying to accomplish, and so that's what you're really teaching from the mm-hmm. pulpit, and then you are taking and illustrating that through. Um, 
an example. So don't, you don't feel the, you do, it would be awful to try to teach the whole thing. Remember, they've gotten a lot of other things. Now there's some tools that are now available, you know, where you can actually show a part of the service. You can show uh, an introductory artistic rendering of that particular chapter. So if you wanted the people to have an overview before you get up and, and give the sermon, you know, we have artwork that's been buried into the story. It's in the student edition uh, that many people use mm-hmm. in the service to say, okay, hey, listen, I'm not going to be able to give you this all. You've already studied it, hopefully, but here's an overview of this chapter. Mm. So one of it is the, the dry painting. The mm-hmm. other is the, that magic marker art like they use for the Bible project. Mm-hmm. We were the first to do that. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, so I really focus in on this thing called the upper story and focus in on an example and let okay. all the other uh, all the other experiences uh, fill in the gap. Kind of illustrate it. That's great. Okay. Well, this has been amazing. I, I do want to ask you about one thing that I know you're passionate about. And some of our listeners will be passionate about it as well, and that is golf. Okay, yes. <laughs> you love golf. I do. You play a lot of golf. You've made a lot of friends uh, with professional golfers, and you're going to start a new podcast. Yes. Tell us about that. Yeah, I do like golf. I had the great fortune of uh, in San Antonio living next door to a PGA professional by the name of Jimmy Walker, and uh, he won the 2015 tournament at PGA uh, Championship, which is a major. And so I got to know him, and through that, I got to know a lot of other players. I've done the invocation for the Texas Golf Hall of Fame for like 12 of the 13 years and got to learn and know about a lot of golfers. And so I just love the game, and I'm at that stage of life where I really want to put my energy into something Mm -hmm. I'm passionate about. A a mentor of mine, a guy that I lean into a lot, came to me and said, Randy, you would do a great job of interviewing golfers who are believers Hmm. and uh, they're really the top end golfers and so uh, he put the resources together a lot of resources so it's really going to be done well it's going to really be promoted and uh, it's called faith in the fairways so i'm getting ready to film that up the first 10 episodes and uh, we're going to have an amazing lineup and uh, so you can listen to it as a podcast uh, but we're also going to turn it into a small group experience so you know you live on a golf course or you have a lot of people that are seeking god and they like golf but they've never heard the stories of these people that they admire, like Bernard Langard and uh, and Scotty Scheffler and Zach Johnson and those guys that are just living out their faith, have incredible stories. Uh, you can have a little small group experience, uh, maybe uh, for believers and seekers, explorers, and uh, show them this uh, podcast, uh, hmm. and uh, and hopefully it'll get a lot of traction. I am so new to the game of golf. Uh, I've played just enough to know I'm awful, uh, but I, I enjoy being out there. I enjoy, you know, there's something about as big as it is and as many people are playing, it's just you four, you know, or just you two. I have great conversations with people out there. I don't take myself too seriously, so I don't take the game too seriously, and I tend to enjoy it more that way. But I'm so new to the game of golf, I don't know all the terminology. I don't know strategy. I don't know the questions to ask. If I were to interview a basketball player, that's another story. Mm -hmm. But when you interview a golfer, um, obviously you're going to talk about their faith. Yeah. But what strategic questions do you like to ask a professional golfer? Yeah, a lot of I like to I like to you know I want to hear their story you know uh, particularly tapping into you know when they started playing golf you know as it turns out most golfers got started pretty 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 early and the cool thing is is they were playing it with their dad yeah you know they, the dad wasn't sitting you know behind a chain link fence on a on a uh, you know aluminum bench but they're out there with your dad and that's a beautiful thing uh 
Um, hmm. And uh, so I'd like to hear you know that story. When it comes to the technical side of, of golf, uh, I like to talk to them about swing thoughts, you know, that, that really work for them, hmm. you know, That's but a lot one. of times, uh, you know, uh, they'll have some great swing thoughts that everyone's interested in. I like to talk to them about the equipment they use, okay. you know, uh, you know, that's a, a big deal. Uh, I like to talk to them about some of the rhythms and I would say some, for believers, it wouldn't be superstitions, but some of the rhythms they have of what they, what they choose to wear, the, the, the routines that they go through. <laughs> they uh, are superstitious, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they are. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, it talked about the routine for putting. Putting is where the game is really, really played and, and uh, how they deal with the pressure. Like my, my neighbor, uh, Jimmy Walker, won the PGA Championship and, uh, and he had like a two-foot, six-inch putt to win it. Well, I mean, many, many people, myself included, miss those putts because your hand's shaking and how do you, you know, focus right. that? But then there's a lot of metaphors with, with golf hmm. uh, to the spiritual life, mulligans. And actually the harder you grip the club, the worse it goes for you, that you gotta swing in tempo. So there's a lot of metaphors in golf that apply to the spiritual life. So that's just a handful of things that uh, we uh, we will try to accomplish uh, in the short time that I have with them. Oh, that's fascinating. I love this. Well, I could talk to you for hours. This has been great. Thank you for what you've done with all your books, but especially with the story. Yeah, it's going to bless our church in so many ways, and uh, can't wait to uh, to journey through it and uh, to enjoy this another time. So appreciate it, Randy. Yeah, thank you, Rusty. Well, that was such great stuff. I hope you were inspired by that, and we'll share that with somebody. Pass that along to a friend, and as always, if you could leave us a review or rate the podcast, that would be really incredible. It helps us get the word out as to what we're trying to do and help other leaders make things simple. Next week, we'll be back with brand new content. Can't wait for you to hear it. As always, keep it simple. Keep it simple.